Hello and welcome to episode number 236 of Smart Podcast Trashy Books. I'm Sarah Wendell from Smart Bitches Trashy Books and I have a cold. I'm at the end of a cold. So hopefully this intro won't be too difficult to listen to. Today I am talking to author Laura Florent about her writing, her romances, and all of the books that she's written which are set in various places in France. We are going to talk about linguistics, adopting pets, cultural differences, using the senses in writing romantic fiction, how indulgence and pleasure are seen in different points of view, especially when you mean things like chocolate, food, perfume, and love languages. We also talk about writing about a place that has suffered from terrorism and attacks and capturing both the reality and the fantasy of a place like that. And of course, we discuss what she's reading. Now, I have a number of things to say. First, there is a special guest appearance several times by Laura's new puppy, Dot. So I want to say welcome, Dot. Welcome to the podcast. We need a new pet on the podcast, and Dot is here for us. This podcast is brought to you by Orville, who would like you to know that the foam inside my sound box is very comfortable for naps. He'd also like you to know that if you would like to sponsor an episode or an entire month of episodes and reach many romance readers, thousands of them, you can email me at sarah at smartbitchestrashybooks.com. But Orville would also like to ask that you not come admire him all at once, as that would be very scary, and he likes to sit in the sound box alone. The music you're listening to is provided by Sassy Outwater. I will have information at the end of the podcast as to who this is. And I have compliments. Compliments are so much fun. And this is a particularly fun set of compliments. So first, to Claudia, who I went to college with. Eee, someone I know. Your dedication to the things that bring you joy is so inspiring. And your creativity is a marvelous thing. Don't stop everything that you do. And to Angie B, who I met. So I got to do a compliment for someone I know and a compliment for someone I met. This is awesome. Thank you, Angie, for making a long drive and for hanging out with me before my panel in South Carolina. Your warmth and welcoming nature are wonderful, not just for me, but for everyone. And if you are wondering, what is this? What is happening? Why, is, why, why are we talking to people? Well, welcome to the podcast. I do this frequently. And if you would like a compliment of your very own handcrafted, artisan-made, and locally sourced from my brain, have a look at patreon.com slash smartbitches for a pledge, a monthly pledge, of as little as a dollar or three dollars or five dollars a month. You can help support the show and keep it increasingly awesome, though still marginally unprofessional because, well, I have a cat who wants to crawl in the sound box. So if you are already a podcast patron, thank you so much. And if you are a regular listener... And maybe you've told someone about the show, or you've left a review, or you had a look at the Patreon page. Thank you very much for that as well. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I do. And now, without any further delay, on with the podcast. Um, well, I'm Laura Florent, or people often say Desporin in the U.S. Um, I, um, I teach at Duke, and I also write books, um, usually set in France, because I'm a Longtime Francophile, and that's where I did all my what, my graduate work. Um, well, most of it, some of it in French Polynesia, and um, as you do. <laughs> well, I've just always loved languages and cultures, and I went ended up in in Francophone countries and in France, and so I really um, love that. And I think when I started writing, I kind of liked that, um, you know, kind of slip into a fairy tale. Um, nature that that permitted me to do, you know, kind of capturing the magic of it. To me, it's very magic. Um, and I love chocolate. <laughs> well known now after the chocolate series. 
which is uh, my lap who is biting me so (laughs) (laughs) we just got a puppy uh friday oh happy new puppy yeah thanks does the puppy have a french name no, we got her from a rescue, and the um, rescue had named her Dot. She's, you know, she's that classic cartoon dog with the white and black spots. Yep. Up yours, that's her. And um, see, she's actually my daughter's puppy, and she liked the name Dot, so we kept it. Yeah, I've never named my pets because they're all rescues. I think there's only been one pet that our cats that we adopted right after we moved in together. Because um, I was pretty sure if you move in with somebody and then you adopt pets, you would never break up. <laughs> so those are the only pets I've ever named. They've all come with their own names. Um, but congratulations on new puppy. My cat daughter renamed her cat that we got to Jewel, but everybody else, we, we just ended up sticking with the shelter name. So. so your latest book is Crown of Bitter Orange. Right. And that is about perfume. So you've moved from chocolate to fragrance. Yes, I think I just really like the... Um, I like everything that lets you sink into the sensuality of it and um, these different textures and scents. Um, to me, that's that lets me get into a lot of kind of, I don't know, to me, magical spaces, things I really love to write about. So, yes, um, I, I, I got kind of tired of writing about Paris and chocolate and started this series that's in the south of France where it's a lot sunnier. And I could talk about, you know, um, well, you could go out into the fields and talk about the rose harvest or the jasmine harvest. Um, there's just a whole different feel and scent and um, to, to to the south of France that I really love. So, yeah. So at some point, somebody told you to write with all of the senses, and you were like, "I'm going to do that all the way up to eleven. Get out of my way." <laughs> You know, yeah, uh, I can't remember anyone telling me that, but I'm sure that that comes across. I know I, I teach a writing class, and I am always telling them. I'm like, brainstorm all the senses that you can associate with this character and in, with this setting. See what you can come up with and work with that. And I do when I when I write, you know, sometimes like you're writing uh, dialogue or something, you'll just be caught up in the dialogue. And then I'll go back, and I'm like, did you know, am I bringing in this setting well enough? And um um, and, and, and once I start, I probably get too sunk into it because I really do love capturing the way people's experience of their place mm-hmm. uh, is part of their character. So, yeah. And also feelings are very connected to emotions. Exactly. Yes. Right. Um, especially, I really love, you know, when I first started writing those chocolatiers, it's such a sensual job. I just said feelings are connected to emotions. <laughs> I meant to say senses, but yeah. you know, they're also feelings also. <laughs> I'm so amused at myself right now and I'm sorry to interrupt that. Clearly the coffee has not hit me yet. So um, senses, also feelings, but senses, they are connected to emotions. <laughs> Absolutely, right? And when I first started writing the chocolate tears, you know, I, what, one of the things that I just loved was when I was observing the real life chocolatiers is how sensual this job is mm-hmm. uh, you know in, in your, and you and a chocolatier is so focused on the senses and I mean sensual not just in like sexual but like the senses right and so focused on every aspect of it on getting it just right and on um giving that pleasure to to someone else and you know in the books it's often is for the heroine then that he focuses um and um and so I think I was similarly attracted when I started working on the perfume field um that, that it's, it's a similar thing except more of a focus on scent um, and you know we all know 
I mean, you know, the, how scents and flavors can carry, you know, it's the old Proust thing. They carry all these memories and these experiences too, so. Oh, absolutely. I remember two years ago when my husband and I went to Spain, I had studied abroad twice. Mm-hmm. And I did not realize how much there were certain smells that I associated only with Spain, specifically um, anything frying in olive oil with sherry vinegar. Oh, yeah. Like sherry vinegar, and it was like the whole language side of my brain woke up and was like, oh, the Spanish words, hold on, we're going to boot up that part of your brain. Just hold on to the sherry vinegar, we'll be right back. it, It woke up my brain, and I was a lot more fluent and able to translate what I was trying to say into Spanish once I was surrounded not just by hearing Spanish but also smelling all of the things that were so familiar oh that's just a fascinating experience for you know to memory to share for a linguist thinking about that because I I love Spain too and I'm just thinking about that experience that's I love it that's great I often say that um for me it's almost like my brain is a partitioned hard drive Mm -hmm. and I have to do specific things to sort of wake up the Spanish part but Mm -hmm. Uh, the first, the, the easiest thing, obviously, to be to drink alcohol. <laughs> no, it's very true. <laughs> you're so fluent when you're a little tipsy. And I mean, you're far more bilingual than I am. But I remember going to a party for a friend of mine at my old job who was Colombian. Um, and he had invited all his family. And I, my husband is like, I'm just going to just, I'm, I, I can, he can understand Spanish. We actually met in Spanish class. He can understand it, but I'm more fluent in being able to talk and translate what I want to say. So I'm drinking wine and my friend's cousin is across the table from me and he's drinking wine. And so I turn to him and I say in Spanish, okay, I think I've had enough to drink that I can carry on a conversation. And he looks at me and he's like, I've been drinking so I can speak English to you. <laughs> I was like, okay, well, you speak English and I'll speak Spanish and we'll keep drinking. It's the relaxation. You know, relaxing instead of worrying too much about whether you're saying the right thing. Yes. That's what it is. I, I mentioned this to my students the other day who are most of them too young to drink in the U.S. I'm like, so it's not like a recommendation, but what I'm saying to seek a relaxed environment. Yes. <laughs> will help you. This is what I mean. Yes. And, you're, and your brain is, um, it, your brain sort of makes the jump from, thinking in one language then tr- and then translating into the other to thinking in that other language. Right. right. Which is you, brains, you, man. Brains. You're like the same as inhibitions, right? It, mm-hmm. Linguistic inhibition, it's gone. Yes. And I am trying very hard to learn French. Oh, yeah. Oui, je prends une app, c'est Duolingo. Oui. Oui, c'est très difficile because I learned some dumb-ass phrases. <laughs> Do you know what I learned how to say? Je love mon cochon. I wash my pig. When the is that? Is that a euphemism? Tell me, that's a good euphemism. It's it's not a good euphemism. It. It's actually it makes me think there's these old jokes in in um, France about the old English language textbooks they would have, where like what what was the classic phrase? I um, bought the hat of my uncle or something like that. You know, they would learn all these crazy phrases to. Yes. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, je love mon cochon. Je love mon cochon. In our, in our park who actually has a pig, so possibly useful in some context. Well, this is clearly <laughs> the guy I need to go talk to, right? <laughs> and we have friends here that are French expats, and they're forever telling me about what they learned in their English classes. Apparently, you just follow Brian everywhere. There's only one guy in the lessons. His name is Brian, and he's always in the kitchen. <laughs> and she's like, yeah. Sarah, we have not met anyone named Brian. And I'm like, you can find a Brian. I can find you a Brian. It's like, yeah. no, 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 no. <laughs> So when you were in graduate school all over the French-speaking universe, what were you studying? Um, well, so I actually, I had a, um, 
I had a Fulbright grant to French Polynesia, and that was officially, it was between my undergrad, I, I applied for it independently after I'd finished, so I didn't quite know what I wanted to do. And um, Been there. And That's then, a really good solution to I don't know what to do. It, it worked out. <laughs> <laughs> and then that was, after that, I applied to grad school, um, so, uh, uh, and I applied, um, one of the places I got in was Duke, and, um, and so I kind of... I had originally wanted to focus more actually on um, Francophone and French Polynesia and things like that. But I ended up, you know, they had a program where they sent me over for a year to France and I met my husband there. Um, and, you know, so it all, you know, I kind of just shifted over from the Francophone over into French, French in France. So in, in French Polynesia, I was studying how the language and literature there were being used in the cultural renaissance, which was actually one of my first enlightening experiences because, you know, I came at it from a very Western perspective. And I got there, and I was like, actually, it's not really the language and literature so much here. It's an oral culture. It's the dance and the music. So, oh, so it's other senses. Exactly. And so that was maybe one of my big first wake-up calls and experiences to, like, truly other cultures and how, you know, kind of getting past that, you know, uh, maybe my you know my, my American perspective on what the world or assumptions or Western assumptions about what the world would be like. Um, so yeah, yeah. Oh, Tahiti is a very sensual place in terms of, you know, the sense of the like chiare flowers and you're by the ocean all the time and dance is, you know, so fundamental to the culture and it's this very sensual kind of dancing. So, um, uh, if you can kind of imagine, it's similar to Hawaiian dancing, so you can kind of, uh, see that. Um, so I was sitting that there, but as I said, I, I, once I was there, I really shifted focus a lot to the, the dance and music. Um, so that's there, but I still had, you know, some work in literature that helped me as I got to Duke. Um, and then there I was focused on, um, so I was focused on French studies. And so, um, well, I ended up, I, you know, you don't, you, at the start, I was still looking towards Francophone and then, um, more French studies, but then I left with my master. So I never had to do my PhD and do the final focus. And then somewhere in there, you became extremely fluent in all the things. <laughs> I don't know about that. All the things. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've always liked languages, so that's yes, that's me too. Different. Yeah, um, but I don't know. You know, you lose them too when you don't use them. Like I right, really so strong in and oh, I I mean, pretty strong in Italian. And then uh, you know, I had to do this book tour there, and I was like listening to all these tapes as I walked into work and trying to talk to my Italian colleagues all the time to get ready. And uh, you know, these these things you forget. Um, in Spanish, similarly, you know, I lived in Spain and I, um, even when I was in France, I had a, my, my, one of my best friends there was Spanish and she would always talk to me in Spanish so you could maintain it, but then you, you know, you're not using it and you feel so rusty when you start back. Yeah. And then you have to drink. Exactly. It's so <laughs> annoying. I, um, I, I find that. A particular wine for each language, right? Oh, Totally. When we were when we were in uh, in Spain, we went to Granada because despite studying in Spain twice, I'd never been. And wow. then we did an all day wine tour into the red regions of Ribera del Duero. Yeah. Um, so we drank a ton of wine, and some of the vineyards that we that we visited, the the hosts spoke English, and then some of them they only spoke Spanish. But the tour guide and I both could translate for my husband, who is way more into wine than I am. Like he's really into the way. Um, you know, the way you taste different things in the wine, I do not have that sense. And he can sort of, 
I can put it in musical tones, like this is all treble. This has a lot of bass. This just punched me in the mouth. But oh, he's, I like that. you know, he's 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 good. more into the the ways in which different wines taste different year to year, and it's it's all, you know, it's all very different applications of sense. But there were a few times when the host of the vineyard could only speak in Spanish. And by that time, we'd had enough wine that my husband was like, oh, yeah, I got all that. No problem. I understand. He's talking about organics and ladybugs and, you know, organic vintages. And he's like, yeah, you're fine. I don't need you to translate. I was like, yes, wine solves everything. It makes friends of everybody, right? Right. It completely makes friends of everyone. So I want to ask you about how you make your writing almost like traveling, which is a really weird question. But one of the things that's really interesting about your books for me as a reader is that when you read them, it's like you are traveling, you're experiencing being in that place. Mm -hmm. And you've written about Paris. And I'm pretty sure somebody in France is really mad right now that you got tired of writing about Paris and they're super pissed off and they don't know why. I still have <laughs> no. I still have another Paris series going on, but I needed to change a bit, you know. Yes, absolutely. The, 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 it's the Paris Nights is really a spinoff of the chocolate series, but since I'm not with the same publisher now, you know, so I, I'm Paris Nights. So I, I am, and I'm having fun with that. But I, I needed, to, you know, I needed to go somewhere sunnier for a while. And oh, of course. Get more out in the country. Um, Paris is cobblestone streets and lots of rain, really. <laughs> yeah, a whole lot of rain. I don't think people realize how much damn rain there is. Oh, I know. So do you have a... a, (laughs) No kidding. Do you have a... Do you have a technique that you use or do you have a a method that you always apply to bring the reader to the place you're writing about? Are there things that you do to, to get yourself into that place? Because writing romance and immersing the reader in a different contemporary world is very difficult. I don't think people really think about how difficult that world building is. For me, so, you know, I I've actually um, have several, you know, drafts not quite finished of like historical novels that I've written that I have a much harder time with because I can't imagine um, settings that I haven't experienced. So I, I'm very bad at it, you know, and the same reason I can't write fantasy very well. I'm very bad at making up a setting. But I, if I can travel to the place and be part of it, then one of the things I've always just taken a lot of pleasure in is trying to capture it and, um, and, and capture it in a way, to me, there's usually kind of a, I, I have a kind of, I mean, uh, a sense of wonder maybe when I'm, I'm I'm traveling in particular where it's a new spot to me or I'm just like the magic of the space or the sense, the sense of, you know, kind of stepping into a fairy tale that I think um, I find a lot in France is just a genuine feeling that I have. And so trying to capture that, I just, um, I don't know that I have a technique except that to remind myself sometimes that... Uh, uh, not to assume that the reader can see it and experience it, and so it, you know, especially you know, to to remind myself to 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 take the time to capture it. Sometimes, if I, you know, like I said, if I if I'm looking back um, through dialogue and I'm like, well, I actually, you know, got caught up in the dialogue and I don't don't mention the setting, but it's pretty instinctive, I think, you know. And a lot of times, I uh, I, I start with setting and maybe have slow starts because of that. Like I'm starting with the main character's experience of their, of their setting, um, like in um, 
uh, well, wish, uh, um, a wish upon Jasmine. She's starting with coming down the um, street and opening the door of this uh, perfume, old perfume shop, and going in there. Mm-hmm. And then with um, with the, I always get the titles mixed up. I think it's the chocolate kiss that is on the island in the Seine. Yes, it's Wait, it's Louis. Oui, oui, oui. And I, I, I am bad at titles. It is um, super embarrassing. So I apologize. <laughs> but I the titles or characters, it's terrible. I, it, I could, I could describe the cover. Yes. She's got she's got macarons balanced on her finger and it's pink and with stripes. Like I could tell you exactly which one it is. The title, the actual words? No, forget it. Why would I need to remember that? That's not useful. Anyway, with with that one, she's in a very specific environment. She's in this tiny little um, island. And one thing that's interesting, I think, for me as a reader when I'm when I'm trying to sort of relocate myself in a book or take a vacation or travel with my with my book and I'm gonna travel with the characters, there's often one character who's moving in. And one character who's already there. And more often than not, you see things through the character who is entering. They're sort of the the reader surrogate of here's all the new things. But with that book, she's already there and she's pissed that he's moved into her territory. Uh-huh. And I yeah. and I love that because she had to not only, you know, communicate how pissed off she was this guy was on her turf, but she also was defending the the way that her world was and didn't want it to change. Yes very attached to her place and very afraid of losing it yeah um that was a really i that was a book i really loved writing because there was that the shop that she has is based on a real shop well it used to exist it doesn't exist anymore and um bummer i had often often i loved that shop so much the number of times i would like sit there with a journal and try to capture everything about it in words on my, you know, in my, in my journal, travel journal, or I would, you know, stare at the window and then take my journal off to the nearest park and try to describe everything about the, you know, their current display window. I mean, I can't even say, think about many times. And I, and, and often I would try to, okay, try to start a story that used that shop. And I, I had all kinds of scenes set there that, you know, that I never kept developed into the right thing. And um, then Kensington had asked me, for another uh, book um, after Chocolate Thief, and I just kind of finally hit the right place with what I wanted to, you know, the right story that I wanted for that place, and was mm-hmm. able to take it away. But it was, and by the time the book came out, the actual shop was gone. It wasn't they sold it. So I always really, I felt really happy though that the book existed because it's kind of a lot of people still, um, you know, they they still remember it and they're like, oh yeah, I knew that place, and so it, it's maybe my tribute to a really magical spot that was, you know, really special. It's also interesting that in your books you blend major, you you blend things that are inherently often in conflict. With that character, she had to learn to embrace the part of her that was half American. Mm -hmm. And you have people um, in Crown of Bitter Orange, you have characters blending the past and the present. And also, you know, blending perfume. And you, Mm -hmm. you... are forcing characters to mix things together in different ways, whether it's chocolate or history or change. Um, are there any things that are so difficult that you don't want to write about them? Are there any um, things where you're like, oh, yeah, I can't I can't do wine or I don't know if I could do shoes. Shoes would be good. You could totally do shoes. <laughs> well, Maggie and Chocolate Kiss liked her shoes. That's um, true. She really did. I, that is actually a challenge for me. I'm not very attentive to fashion at all. So when I want to make a character who is fashionable, I have to do research. And I have to <laughs> like, what are the shoes and what are the, you know, that she would wear? So Maggie Lee was a, uh, Maggie Lee was a fashion 
pounds. She loved her shoes and stuff. And so I had to keep Googling <laughs> what, the, what the boots might look like and what the sweater might look like that she would wear. Um, that's it. Yeah. For, for my Paris heroines uh, in particular, that can yes. be a challenge because um, most of them have a strong fashion sense. Yes. Um, so, but you know, it's good for me. It's a good challenge. I guess I, I think that the mixing itself is, you know, just your ultimate metaphor, right? For, for falling in love and trying to bring two lives to lives together in a way that respects those two lives and allows both of those people to maybe make compromises, but still be their full selves. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can often be, you know, that's one of the often big challenges. And I'm not the only writer who, who likes to, you know, give them two things that seem like they're not going to be able to fit. I mean, how do they make them fit? Um, what do they do? Um, but I, I, I think in terms of like, you were saying, you know, like, things that I, I, I mean, like I, once people asked me to write a book about cheese and I'm like, I love, I mean, I love good cheese, but I do not find that remotely romantic. (laughs) I just cannot have the hero like, here's this cheese I made for you. It doesn't work for me. Mm -hmm. You know, I could, um, so there's some things that to me, they don't have that kind of sensuality that I, uh, I I like working with. Um, Right. So even though cheese, you know, I know people are going to get mad at me about the cheese. I can just picture somebody's going to listen to this and be like, yeah, you don't understand cheese. I have to tell you, but I'm going to get angry. I'm going to get angry email now. <laughs> I understand cheese. I, I, all the 365 kinds of cheese. But, uh, um, but I just, yeah, it's to me, it is not a, um, it doesn't have that underlying eroticism to it. You know, that sensuality like chocolate does or pastries or perfume or mm-hmm. picking roses, you know, so. And also the idea that, especially from my understanding of French culture, in, in indulgence is a necessity. That is something I often actually, and even readers will, will, will write to me and say like, oh, you made me um, indulge in my guilty pleasure. Yeah, there's no guilty part there. Guilty pleasure. There's no guilt. I mean, there's pleasure, but there's no guilt. And I do, actually, that is something I feel strongly about. And try to communicate just because that's what I believe, that, you know, that you you shouldn't be feeling guilty about your pleasures. You should just enjoy them, you know? Which is funny when you think about it on a more meta level, because romances are so often described by readers as their guilty pleasure. You know, they should be reading this esoteric literature. No, I know. This is a very, though, this is a... I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong about this, but it seems to, you know, we talk about Americans' Puritan heritage and this kind of demonization um, <laughs> of pleasure. Yes, somewhere um, someone is having an orgasm and they must be stopped. Well, yeah. And so it's like if you're in, if you're having pleasure or if you're having leisure, mm-hmm. it's not be working hard enough and you're not serious enough. And um, I would definitely fall on the French side of that where, like, you can be very productive in your productive time and still... Um, enjoy life in all the senses and still relax over a table with friends until, you know, six in the morning, mm-hmm. um, drinking and eating cheese and <laughs> having a good time, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> and, it's, and it's interesting if you think about the fact that you're writing romances about what are things that are considered a guilty pleasure, fragrance, um, you know, chocolate, food. So you are writing the meta of guilty pleasure. You're writing guilty pleasure books about guilty pleasures that no one should feel guilty about. Yes. <laughs> and, I wish, and I'm like, people just think into it. Yep. And yes, if it makes you go buy some good chocolate for yourself, wonderful. Don't feel guilty. No, not at all. So what are some of the things that you've learned that you really appreciate having done the research for? I mean, I'm sure you found really good chocolatiers. Do you have yes. a new favorite perfume? <sighs> 
No, I do not have a favorite perfume. No, I actually, uh, oh, I probably shouldn't say this. Her perfumes give me headaches. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you are not alone. Exploring the scents and I've done like, you know, I've worked um, in, in, in grass. You can, you know, you can do workshops where you learn perfume making yourself and you can follow perfume makers. Um, but I, I do not actually wear perfume. <laughs> so that's going to get people, <laughs> especially with my main characters, with Priston and um, with Jess being perfumers. People are going to find me hypocritical now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. I, I, there are a lot of people for whom sense is 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 a pretty difficult thing to manage. That you're you're going to get a headache from a lot of strong sense, especially because culturally in, in the United States we also apply sense differently. Mm-hmm. And um, you know you become nose blind to your own perfume that yes. you wear all the time, so you add more of it which is not the point. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, that's one of those whole fun debates about perfume. You know, you know this idea of having your sillage, you know, the um, kind of scent that like wafts in your wake. Yes, your signature. It, right. But also the, the belief that your scent is only for people who are up close enough to kiss you. So they're not, they're, they're, they're not necessarily, you know, there are different attitudes about that, right? Whether yes. Scent, how wide your scent should go. Yes. Um, so... So what are you working on right now? My next book is in the Paris Night series. It's the Trust Me, it comes out in April. Um, and so that's back in Paris. That would be, that was a challenging book to write. Um, Paris has been going through a lot. Um, yes. And it was very hard for me um, because, you know, in Chase Me, I had set up kind of, I had really just wanted to write kind of a Hollywood book mm -hmm. because I had been watching, I don't know, you know, Black Widow or something. And um, and I was like, why can't I write like Hollywood where I just don't even care how likely or plausible it is that you can, you know, you can do these things. But I can just have this, you know, leather clad heroine who can throw knives and banter and stuff with this, you know, seal hero and, and, and not worry about the realism of it and just have fun with it. And so I had started with that. Um, and then and he was supposed to be investigating a, a terrorist threat. And then while I was in the middle of writing that, there was the. There was a Bataclan attack. Right. So that was really, really hard. Um, there had already been, like, you know, the Charlie Hebdo attack, and that was hard. I, I One of the people who would, one of the survivors of the attack who um, was a colleague of mine from the year before he had been at our department as a visiting fellow. Um, so those things were really hard to um, absorb and then try to respect um, yes. the trauma and the damage that that caused. Um and at the same time, let these books stay happy books. Mm -hmm. um, you know, um, so it, when I was already caught in this thing of where I was had started out making a fairly, uh, uh, you know, flippant, uh, lighthearted kind of Hollywood. So just trying to find that, um, deal with it. And so this trust me book, it's the the um, the pastry chef of uh, in that same restaurant, and mm -hmm. she's basically dealing with the aftermath. Um, so, you know, it's, it's been challenging a couple of, it was, it's been challenging. I, it's, um, I think I've, I'm really happy with the way it turned out and I hope other people, you know, will be too when it comes out. But I have to say last year was a challenging writing year for everything happening. Uh, yeah. Just a little. Just, yeah. <laughs> Just kind of keeping that, um, that happy magic fairy tale, um, world that I, I, I 
think I've typically done in books, you know, just keeping that spirit. That was good. And and it's difficult to, if you're representing for someone who's never been to a place, what it's like there, what this one particular street would smell like, or what this Mm -hmm. one particular neighborhood is like every day. And you're trying to write and, and portray how it's changed after a horrible traumatic event that affected everyone. And you're sort of trying Mm -hmm. to explain this place is still beautiful and there's still Mm -hmm. wonderful things about it. And there are all of these wonderful indulgences that are part of everyday life. And yet there is this open, painful wound that everyone carries. Yes. It's, and it's, it's hard to balance that and and blend that. Yes. And at the same time, I think, you know, after the Bataclan, one of the um, drawings that circulated, you know, there were all, all kinds of cartoonists and stuff responded in their own ways, you know, and one of the things that circulated a lot was, um, you know, I am Paris, I am here on a terrace, restaurant terrace, I am drinking and eating and having fun with my friends, I am Paris, right? Mm-hmm. And this was kind of this response because a lot of those people were, were shot while they were on a terrace eating yes. and others in the theater. And so, you know, two quintessentially Paris things to do. And and so one of the assertions and affirmations of themselves was to, and, and people did this, like, the you know, going out that weekend and making a declaration of going out and not being kept from doing those activities and being who Parisians are. Um, it was a very powerful and very moving thing. And so I think, yes, it's important to, um, to keep, keep that and respect that Paris spirit, right? Which mm-hmm. is still, you know, um, we are Paris and we believe these things and we will, you know, do these things. So, um, yeah. Um, the bad guys don't get to win. so <laughs> Right, and, and they, they cannot destroy the things that make your culture what it is. Exactly, right. And there was a very powerful affirmation of that. And I think as, you know, writing, I, I try to, um, you know, respect that and capture that too, right? Yep. And plus, when you're writing romance, you're writing about the essentials of human emotion. You're writing about the wonderful connections between humans that make everything better that help us because you're writing about love and affection and kindness and taking care and when you're also writing about food and (laughs) the things that you eat and the things that you make for other people to eat that is all a form of intimacy and that intimacy can can alleviate a lot of fear yes and it's the quintessential you know contact of humanity right yes um so uh you, you know I mean, well, you know, first of all, falling in love is the quintessential cont- continuation and affirmation of life yes. because basically it's purpose. Um, it's, you know, can we, can we, you know, can we bring people together? Can we continue our species? Can we create, um, can we create couples? Can we create families? Can we, you know, um, can we uh, create networks of, you know, you know, I don't mean the couple has to produce a child, right? But networks of support and solidarity in different ways that help us all have good lives and continue so um i I think that yeah um all of these things and then of course for me and i i mean it's not just for me for everybody food offering food to someone is you know one of your fundamental love languages it's 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 from time immemorial from the beginning of species and from most species we know sharing a food is a sign of caring for the other person um or for the other creature um you're willing to give uh to bring try to bring them pleasure and also share your life source with them basically right yes so, and uh, it's very intimate yes 
I, spe- I, I especially love the, um, you know, if, when we get down to like the chocolatiers and the pastry chefs who are trying, you know, they're pouring their heart into trying to figure out the combination of flavors and textures that will really speak to the person that they're, you know, I, I um, like in the chocolate heart or um, in the chocolate kiss, she's trying to make the, the hot chocolate that will, um, you know, kind of bring him into her power and he's trying to make the dessert that will, um, you know, that impress would just, her. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, cause they're in this, this, this kind of love battle of the whole book. Um, so it's, it's, yes, you're thinking, what does this other person like and want and what can I produce and make that is part of me, um, that will, you know, just fulfill that other person too. So. And I remember in the, in the next book, um, the heroine is is recovering from uh, an attack that on herself she was um, mm-hmm. she was attacked and the hero a is obsessed with feeding her because she's mm-hmm. too thin but then I mean, yeah. <laughs> and yet all of these men one of the things that I loved about the chocolate series was that they were a different kind of alpha hero they were alphas very much in their kitchen this was their turf yes but then they yeah. were inherently caretaking and trying desperately to communicate different emotions through food and so you know often I think that for many readers the idea of an alpha hero is sort of a shorthand for um, has one emotion hates that one emotion and is mad about it yeah <laughs> and when, when you're <laughs> which is not the alpha hero that I like at all um, yeah. I like I like my heroes emotionally fluent and also somewhat mature and yeah. when you're dealing I mean, with the it's heroine's job to fix him every way, you know, yeah, um, maybe open his eyes about some things, but not not all the things. Yes, yeah. Right. My 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 least favorite trope in a lot of older contemporaries is you made me have a feeling and I hate it, so I hate you, and I'm going to be really mean to you because you um, made me feel like oh, for God's sake, grow the hell up. I would I would entirely agree with you on that. <laughs> I mean, I also. I don't even know where some of these things come from. I think people, it may be that people just have, I've had this discussion with other people who are like, well, you, you had a, like a good dad, didn't you? And I'm like, yeah, my dad was a good dad. And I had four older brothers and they were, you know, far, far from perfect, but fundamentally well-meaning, mm-hmm. you know? And, um, and so, yes, maybe my, um, uh, you know, maybe some writers and also readers who respond to that are coming from a different space. Maybe. Um, that's certainly a theory that's been proposed to me when I'm like, huh, why didn't people even like these? Yes, <laughs> why is this a guy you like? He's such a jerk. Wad. Yeah, I, they, are, they are very popular with a lot of readers. They just, those heroes don't work for me. No, not me either. And when, uh-huh. you, were, when you were writing about, was it Jamie? Yeah, so Jamie in English and her, um, Dominique pronounced her name Jem. Jem, right. Yeah. So the the scene that stuck with me from that book was um, at the end when he and I think was was Dom and then a hero from another book were Mm -hmm. trying to feed her. And and the one guy says to the other one, did you ever see the pictures? Don't look. Just don't ever look. That's the sort of uh, emotional fluency that I love. Like, I know this is going to hurt you. Now, I would like to hurt you professionally in like 95 <laughs> different ways. But in this way, no, I'm going to look out for you. Yes. And I actually think there's plenty, you know, that that's a, a not unusual thing. That no. Professional rivals or guys who are like ready to kill each other and say sports if that's their thing. But um, can all go but, out for a beer after. Exactly. There are things that are there. There's a competitiveness that is. Um, healthy. Yes. And it's um, part of uh, the drive to get ahead. And then there's a, 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 
kind of willful infliction of real emotional damage that is no, not okay. Right. right. And I think in to make sweeping gender statements, I think that that's something that's taught to men more than it's taught to women. Mm-hmm. That you can compartmentalize and compete in a healthy way that is located in this one sphere and yes. then set it aside later. And I, I, speaking for myself, I was never taught to do that. I figured it out as an adult yeah. because I didn't like being jealous and envious and um, avaricious all the time. Like that feels horrible. Yeah, it's just exactly. gross. Yeah. It, and I, I had to figure it out. Well, I um... – you know, there's been studies done on, um, there was a study I saw, um, you know, and it, and it kind of annoyed me the way it was done, but it was, um, you know, that, that uh, when they look at the way um, boys in school would solve problems, um, I can't remember the age of the kids, but, and then girls, the boys would tend to compete to mm-hmm. be the person who solved the problem, and the girls would tend to work together and form a team to solve the problem. And the reason the study made me mad was because like, they're like, so we need to teach girls to be more like boys and compete. And I was like, well, why do you draw that conclusion? Perhaps the boys could also learn from the girls' instinctive ways. But I, I wonder if that's, you know, there's some instinctive um, or societally trained, um, uh, you know, or a little a combination of both, mm-hmm. um, where, where, you know, girls uh, feel like they're... It, well, first of all, if you stand too much above the crowd, you can be punished for it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, if you're competing to get ahead of the others, you know, why? When you're supposed to be kind of on their team. Yes. Um, and so... Um, Plus women are instinctively, or not instinctively, we're inculcated to care. We yes. have to, we do the emotional labor because that's our job. Yes. And also, but also they can get, um, you know, kind of this... Um, pushback or negative reaction whenever they're not nice. Mm-hmm. And when, um, really? I'd never had that happen. <laughs> yeah, really. It's <laughs> <laughs> never happened. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I remember, and it's a very instinctive thing. It's like you're, you're, you know, you're supposed to be, and and people don't even realize how, to what degree they are placing that expectation on the girls to be nice, mm-hmm. even a some boy in class is pulling their hair or whatever, you know, um, um, there's, they're supposed to be the one who stays nice. And that comes across, you know, even by people who think they're, um, very feminist and very aware. Um, you see it all the time. I see it with my daughter who's 10 now. I've Mm -hmm. seen that kind of thing come across. Like one time on the playground, um, there was, you know, these boys just running behind her to tease her, not really mean, mean, but she wanted them to stop grabbing at her backpack and stuff and so mm-hmm. it, uh, uh, and they wouldn't and she told them to and so at one point she kind of just swung her backpack at them and she accidentally gave one of them a bloody nose <laughs> well but, and so you know and so um there was this you know this whole thing and women where um I was like well you know I apologized to the mom but to her I, I was like you know I feel like you did the right thing you told yeah them it's not like you deliberately bladed his nose, but you know, at some point, it, you need to reinforce the girl's right to to fight back. Yes, and she tried to establish a boundary that wasn't respected. So, okay, she's going to establish her boundary with her books in a bag. Right, right. And if he hadn't been still chasing her, the books would not have hit him. So, yep. you know, I mean, in the bag. So, you know, it's these these things where I feel like we can easily give a message where she, you know, the guy, you know, you get picked on and. Um, until you fight back and then you're in the wrong. And I think we do that to girls much more than to boys. We do. Which makes the, um, one of the things I love about romance is the way in which, because we were talking about the, the 
way you express love and the things that you do, the, the language of, of your tasks that expresses your emotion. I'm also fascinated by the way that in romance we write about emotional labor and that I think there's more of a division of emotional labor, especially mm-hmm. between the hero and heroine or the two the two protagonists, depending on the, the gender that they are. I don't want to enforce a binary where there isn't one. Sorry. Um, so you yeah. have the, the emotional labor being divided in the characters. And what's interesting about Crown of Bitter Orange is that the you know the hero is trying to heal mm-hmm. and bring the heroine back into his world and is pretty confident this is all going to work out whereas the people around him are like you really don't understand what you're doing here dude because <laughs> there's bad family history and that's another kind of labor to up to keep that up right well he's i mean he's that's his one of his particular arrogances is you know he's he's sure he knows better than everybody else, really, because he's the emotionally smart person in the family. Yep. And so, um, you know, and, and just, I think it was just something I had fun with, with his, with his family, like, uh, um, you have a blind spot. Yes. <laughs> um, and him refusing to listen to them the way, you know, they had often refused to listen to him um, when he, because he's the one who's often trying to get them to get their heads on straight um, in their, in their relationships. And uh, they, you know, they would usually kind of forge ahead on their, on their past. Mm-hmm. And he's always rolling their, his eyes over, you know, um, their inability to handle their emotional relationships, co- you know, correctly because he can just see how they should do it. But when he's in one himself, of course. Oh, it's never easy. easy when it's you. It's easy. It's easy to see when it's someone else. Yeah. So I just had fun with that, with them trying to beat him over the head with, uh, excuse me, but. <laughs> Hello. And him just completely, you know, completely blowing them off. That's something I've, I learned this year about myself really that. That it's okay if I'm in a situation and I don't know what to do to ask somebody, okay, this is the situation I'm in. W- would you tell me what you think I should do? Because I don't know what to do because I see everyone else's problems with perfect clarity. <laughs> yes, yeah, get some outside perspective. Yeah. But in that family, in the Rosier family, they have this, you know, they're very, they have a lot of solidarity, but they're also very competitive. Mm-hmm. Which is really inspired from my four brothers. <laughs> <laughs> but, the, you know, so, so they can it takes a little bit of you know a glass a couple of glasses of wine before they can sometimes just kind of loosen up and show that they need uh they need a little bit of help or advice yep so the question i always ask each guest is what you are reading that you want to tell people about are there any books that you want to tell people about that you've really enjoyed lately oh i read um have you read um pretty face yet Oh my gosh, yes. Oh, I loved it. Oh, I loved it so much. So she's a new author I discovered with Act Like It, which I loved. Oh my God, I love that book. Yeah, and then I read A Pretty Face, which if possible, I loved even more. I mean, you know, I love both of them so much. Um, I just, I love her. um, So she has a kind of acerbic wit, you know, kind Mm -hmm. of that I just respond to very well. But at the same time, without being, I mean, they they can bounce off each other, some some serious um, jabs, but they both seem to be up to the weight of it. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not like one person is being cool to the other. They're like, you know, they're sparring, like they're fencers that are evenly matched, her characters. Um, and, and so you can have a lot of fun with the way they spar with each other verbally. Mm-hmm. And so she's got this great dialogue, this kind of very kind of biting, funny wit. And then this um, really wonderful characterization, not only of the main characters, but of the secondary characters. Yes. She captures that West End theater setting. That's another example of writing into a place where I'm there yeah. when I read it. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, which is not something I had ever really known that much about, the West End theater setting, or really theater, period. But um, when you're, you're there, you just feel, and all the characters, the secondary characters, everybody feels so real in the way they act. Not um, not like you're reading a stereotype of someone or, or a two-dimensional yes. character. Um, so, yeah, and I, if, I mean, I don't know. I'd have to go back and read Act Like It again, too, now to compare um, that I finished, because I just came off Pretty Face with such a love, and I was like, I think it's even more emotionally heart-tugging, too, as it say, while keeping the humor and the dialogue. But since I love both of them so much, I don't, yeah. I, I recommend both. And if you've already read Act Like It, to definitely grab Pretty Face. Oh, yes. No question. I, I think pretty much anything Lucy Parker publishes, I'm going to, like, demand to yeah, read as soon as it's available. Like, did she just type the end? Email it to me now. Yeah, let me have it, yeah. And what else? Um, so I had read um, Karina Bliss, you like too, right? I yes. Fall. Um, this has been a couple months ago now, but that was the last, another book recently that um, that I really loved. Um, the With Dimity and Seth. So Dimity's kind of the one in the series that, you, that I kind of didn't think I would like because, you know, she comes off very, very abrasive in the um, previous books in that series. And then you get into her skin and the way she has to fight her corner and the reasons she, you know, and I just, I really loved her the way she fought her corner. And Seth was this kind of good guy, um, you know, relax, you know, this more relaxed, maybe a little bit like Pisson and, um, and Corinna Bitter Orange in that, in that way. He's more relaxed and more comfortable um, with things and trying to get her to let down her guard. Yes. Yeah, that was another great one. I love that one. The thing I loved about um, the the conflict in Pretty Face was that a lot of it is based on the idea of how much you have to worry about what people are going to say. Yes, and yeah. it's all then, that that is wrapped up in every aspect of the story. Mm-hmm. Yes, that what it really means to live that kind of public life mm-hmm. um, and have that. And I thought she did a good job because sometimes that kind of conflict can be set up fairly superficially, mm-hmm. but she did a good job of really showing how this is affecting them truly. Um, on both, you know, in terms of their daily lives, but also, um, you know, their career reputations. Mm-hmm. And um, that they both acknowledge that whatever happens, it's going to be much harder for her every time. Yes. 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 The realism of it, right? Of, of, of being the young, um, the young one in the relationship, but also the, you know, the busty, beautiful kind of Marilyn Monroe kind of. That was know. my thought, too, that yeah. she was like Marilyn Monroe. Everyone assumes that she's stupid and she's really quite smart. Right, and also everybody assumes that everything she does, you know, she slept her way to it, right? Mm-hmm. Which is perfectly fine for him. Right. Well, it, I mean, he gets some, he gets some blowback for it, but you know, but it's more fine for him. And of course, for her, it's that that usual judgment of women. Um, and I think I think Lucy does a great great job of pulling that out in ways realistic, but also you know that, that you believe in their happy ending and you, yeah, that they're going to work. And I love your description that they're in the same weight class. Yes. That's really a good way of putting it. They are in the same weight class. They are coming from very different places, but they are, it's like the emotional weight class. They are equals in that way. Yeah. I was actually thinking about that on a walk this morning because I was thinking about how sometimes when the guy is kind of, he'll say jerky things or whatever, he'll say, you know, a mean thing. It bothers me more in books than others. And I was thinking, you know, if they are, if they are fighting and they are equals in their fight, it's a very different feel for me when I read it than if, uh, you know, she is, say, in a weaker position than he is, and he's being a jerk to her. Mm-hmm. So um, I think, th- so in, in Lucy's books, when they spar off each other, it's like if one person says something 
um, rude or, you know, he's dismissive in a way he shouldn't be at the start, you know, because that's how this book starts. He's dismissing her. Mm-hmm. She has to, um, you know, he has to learn the error of his ways and she kind of forces him to do that. She is perfectly capable of doing that. I mean, she is right in his face as, as, as she needs to be. Um, and you know, she can handle him and he is not, um, he's not going to get away with that. No. And, and that's true in the first book too, because the, the hero, um, Richard, he has such a reputation for being a grumpy, taciturn. But he is. <laughs> right. Like, Do you end up loving that? <laughs> he's super crabby and he doesn't like people and he doesn't like people in his business and he's crank- cranky all the time. And she, not only does she call him. Streak herself, right? Yeah, she's, <laughs> she understands. She has nothing to lose by not taking his shit. Uh-huh. She can give it right back to him. And then there's one scene where he's where he has to sort of acknowledge all right, I, I act like this, but um, I don't mean to hurt you. I don't. I'm not lashing out because I want to hurt you. Mm-hmm. And her response is, "Okay, so then maybe not do that." Yeah, exactly. in the first place, dumbass. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm not your punching bag, so you know I'm yeah. glad you acknowledge that, but you still need to stop. <laughs> right. So, you know, referencing the title, you're an adult. Act like one. Exactly. Oh, yeah. I love that. Right. Yeah, no, she does. I, I, I love, you know, I'm going to go read Act Like It again. I have reread that several times. It's a comfort yeah. reread for me. Oh, it is. It's a wonderful book. And I've just read several, I'm not going to say the names, but just several books where I thought I was, I was reading a wonderful book, loving it. And then I got to the end and I'm like, wait, what happened? Yeah, I've, I've read a few that you get like to 85% and then you're like, wait, this isn't what I was reading. What happened? Oh, I, I know. It fell apart. How did, yeah. no. Go back. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And and actually, a couple of these books were fantasies, so they don't even like they didn't have a happy ending. I'm like, wait, oh, <laughs> what happened? Bugger. I was the happy, you know? How this happened? But oh well. So yeah, I need to go back and read Act Like It. Yes. Restore my reading. Yes, later. it's wonderful. You also might like um, the Hating Game. Oh, yeah, I've had that has been recommended to me, but I haven't picked it up yet. It's got a similar feel in terms of the dialogue. It's two people who um, it's it takes place in a publishing house and two publishing houses have merged. And the, the two leads are the assistants to the two heads of those publishing houses who are now trying to figure out how to work together. And they hate each other. <laughs> they hate they play petty games against each other. They share a, a cubicle space. They hate each other it's all from her point of view for the most part um but then the dialogue is just delicious oh you would really like it i'll have to check it out yeah it's i've I've seen it recommended but i haven't picked it up yet so it would it would totally work for you especially because the heroine is um very petite Uh and she dresses in a sort of vintage librarian style Uh and of course people underestimate her and between the two of them, you know, everyone's afraid of him. No one wants to bring him anything. They all give it to her to give to him. And she's the one who's nice and kind and accommodating. And they, they help each other change in, in better, in good ways. And, oh, you're going to really like it, I think. Oh, okay. I hope you read it. Yeah, no, this sounds good. Yeah, this might be what can clean, cleanse my reading palette. After yes. <laughs> And that is all for this week's episode. I want to thank Laura Florin for hanging out with me on Skype and telling me all the things. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. 
Um, if you are interested in trying to learn another language, I want to tell you there are a number of free resources. I've been using an app named Duolingo, which at this point is amusing the hell out of me because having learned a language uh, through immersion and also through lessons in school, I don't necessarily think it's the best method, but I was able to make my way around Strasbourg last summer after figuring out basic words and phrases. That said, I want to let you know that there is every likelihood that your local library has a buttload, a literal paid-for buttload of language software that you can access for free because as a library patron, you get to do all the cool things. So if you are thinking, I want to learn another language, it's very good for your brain, and I bet your local library can help. And if you are a librarian who knows about this stuff or you know about language software and you want to tell me all the things... You should totally do that. Sarah at smartbitchestrashybooks.com. I would very much appreciate it because, you know, my brain is already annoyed with me for trying to learn a third language. Why not go for four, right? Eventually, I'm just going to start busting out the other languages while I do the podcast parts. and It's just going to be weird. Okay. This podcast is brought to you by Orville, my cat and sound engineer who wants you to know that if you would like to sponsor an episode, you can email me at sarah at smartbitchestrashybooks.com. You can sponsor one episode. You can sponsor a whole month. We can do all kinds of funky things. But if you're interested, thank you very much. And if you're not interested in sponsoring, but you would like to support the show, please have a look at patreon.com slash smartbitches. Your pledges are enormously and deeply appreciated and help me make the show more and more awesomer and gooder each week. Plus, you might get a handcrafted, genuinely heartfelt, artisan source compliment from yours truly the music in this podcast is provided by sassy outwater who deserves all the compliments this is caravan palace this track is called dragons can't imagine why i like this one so much you can find this on their album and i have linked to a new double edition of caravan palace's two albums and you can have them for your very own if you go to facebook or itunes or amazon or their facebook page where there's more information either way i'll have links to all of this stuff Plus, I will also have links to all the books we talked about during the episode. And in the meantime, on behalf of Laura Florent and myself and Orville and Wilbur and all of the other animals, plus Dot, the new puppy, welcome Dot. We wish you the very best of reading. Have a great weekend. <laughs>